0: It's good to be together and I'm actually, I'm already very grateful for the energy in the room because on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we battle with a little thing called tryptophan. And so the turkey just gets you in a sleepy place, right? You know, so it's good to have some energy. Are you glad to be here this morning? Good, excellent. Hey, last Sunday was uh, an important day in the life of our church. And in kind of this theme that we're talking about, the beautiful disruption. And I feel like God did something really beautiful in our church last Sunday. And I want to go back really briefly and just remind you that we talked last Sunday about the way Paul understood his life as a person who is fundamentally here for one reason and one reason only to be on mission in God's world for the sake of the gospel. And do you remember we talked about the fact that Paul, when he looked out on the sea of humanity and he thought of all the different people in the world, when he, when he looked at people, he realized, I am in debt to them on behalf of the gospel. Like I owe, I owe the people of this world this gospel message that God has entrusted to me. And we talked about that that's really a way we should be thinking about ourselves as a church. We have been entrusted with something absolutely precious, River West. And we are in debt to everyone who's not had the opportunity to hear about Jesus. So one of the things I asked you to do last Sunday, and if you missed the sermon, I'll ask you to go back and listen. I asked you to make a list called My Five. And it was a list of five people that are in your life, in your path, as a human being in this world. Maybe it's a someone at work, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's someone who sits next to you at school, but five people that God has put in your path, that you might share the beauty of Jesus with at some point. And I ask you to write that list down and I'd love for you to bring that list with you Sunday after Sunday, tuck it in your Bible, pray for those names, think about those folks as we continue to listen to Romans. And let's, let's make that something we do together as a church. It'll be a beautiful thing. All right, let's have some fun this morning. Are you ready? Because we're, we're fighting the tryptophan. Here we go. It's time for a pop quiz. I'm totally serious, right? Right now, we're having a Romans quiz, okay? Let's just see. Now, you're not going to be graded on this, all right? And you don't have to answer out loud. I'm going to throw up three questions here about Romans chapter one. Let's just see how you're doing so far, okay? When you hear the first question, just think in your head. Don't spit it out. Don't cheat. Don't help your neighbor, all right? Here we go. Romans pop quiz, question number one. Paul described his commitment to the gospel with three words obligated, eager, and what was the third word? Just think of it, think of it. And the answer is unashamed. Did you get it? Okay, good job. All right, how you doing so far? You're 100%, one for one. Okay, here we go. Question number two. What was the reason that Paul gives for the, for the fact that he's not ashamed of the gospel? What reason did he give for this? Think about it. Answer is It's the power of God for salvation, good. Are you two for two so far? Good, because I'm about to throw you a question that you're definitely not gonna know the answer to. Here we go, this is the tough one. What is the final outcome? What's the final goal? What is the final result of this powerful working of God in salvation? What is God trying to create? And the reason I'm laboring on this one, I'm hanging on this one, this is where we're going today. And I have a feeling that the answer that I'm about to put up, very, very few Christians would know that this is the answer. And the answer is this, that we might be righteous in his sight. That's the goal, that we might be righteous. The goal of the gospel is to create a people who can stand in God's presence in the presence of a holy and a righteous God. And that's what Romans 1 verse 17 is about. Now Romans 1 verse 17 is a further explanation of the claim that Paul made in verse 16. Remember Paul in verse 16 said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. And then what Paul does when he gets to verse 17 is he says, and now I'm gonna tell you what I mean by that. I'm going to explain to you how it is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read these two verses now and I'm going to intentionally read verse 17 incorrectly. And I'm going to do this for effect. I'm going to substitute one word in this verse, 17, with the wrong word to draw your attention to what Paul actually says. So will you look at your Bible with me now? Here's Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, verse 17, for in it, the love of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith." Which is not what Paul says. Now, is that true? That is true. The gospel does reveal God's love, right? But that's not what Paul's talking about in this verse. I could, I could pick countless words. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, for in it, the forgiveness of God is revealed. That's absolutely true. But that's not Paul's focus. The gospel, is the power of God for salvation, because in the gospel, the grace of God is revealed. And let me tell you something, River West, that's true. But that is not Paul's point from this point forward in the book of Romans. Paul is trying to get his readers to understand something. The gospel is revealing something about what God has done in the world through the power of the gospel. And it's not primarily about God's love, experiencing his love. It's not primarily about forgiveness, although that is true. It's not even primarily about God's grace, although that is true. What the gospel specifically reveals that unleashes the power of God in the world is something about righteousness. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And you see immediately we have a problem because that word righteousness is just, it's a really big Bible word, right? And some of you are sitting there thinking, I've heard this word a lot but I will be honest with you, I'm not totally sure what it means. And that's okay. That's why we're here. And sometimes we hear words over and over and over and we assume we know what they mean and we rush past them. But it's in that assuming that I know what Paul's talking about here, that all of the power of the gospel will get emptied from my experience. And so we've got to take some time on this concept. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for one reason, and, and not for some others. And the reason is this, that in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. Righteousness. Probably the simplest way into this concept is to notice, think of the word righteousness, notice the English word that's right there at the beginning of it, the word right. And he asked the question, what does it mean to be right with someone? If I were to say to you, are we all right? Are we all right? You you know exactly what I mean by that. You mean, are we in good standing? Are things in our relationship good and true? Or is there something between us? Has something gone sideways? Is something broken? Is there some reason why my relationship with you has been severed or harmed? And that brings you really close to the meaning of righteousness. Righteousness. Righteousness is a relational word. It has to do with being in right relationship with someone. And this is the problem, River West. The problem is, if I were to ask the question, God, are you and I all right? The answer to that question is actually, we're not. Something's wrong. And it has to do with righteousness. And that's why we need the gospel. Now, if you just grabbed your Bible this week and you started reading Romans, you would begin to notice that Paul uses the word righteousness countless times. Over 60 times, some form of this word is going to show up. So if we don't understand what Paul means by righteousness, we're already off track in our study in Romans. And so here's what I want you to do. Will you write this down? Whenever you hear the phrase righteousness of God, here's what I want you to think of immediately. Three features. I'm going to put these up. You need to think of three things. An attribute of God, an action of God, and an achievement of God. Divine attribute, divine action, and divine achievement. And let's just take a little bit of time on on each of these. Divine attribute, before anything else, righteousness describes God's character. It's the righteousness of God. Do you see that in verse 17? That's what Paul's talking about. Not just some disconnected concept. He's talking about the righteousness of God. God is the subject. So whenever we talk about righteousness, we're talking about something that comes from God, something that is inherent to God. You can never talk about God's traits without eventually talking about righteousness because God is righteous. It's who he is. It's basic to his character. As heat is to fire, righteousness is to God. As rain is to Oregon, righteousness is to God, okay? As tryptophan is to Turkey, okay? You get it. You you can never talk about God and think, what are the characteristics of God? And not eventually go, we got to talk about righteousness because God is righteousness. Paul was a devout Jew. He was a Pharisee. And he almost certainly had many Old Testament scriptures in mind when when he talked about this but I'll share one in particular. This is Psalm eleven, seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Notice Paul saying righteousness is that which is acceptable to God because God himself is righteousness. He is righteousness. He's the standard. He's the true north. He's the plumb line. You can't understand or have a concept of righteousness without knowing who God is. He's wholly consistent within himself, the perfect standard of true righteousness. And friends, this is actually a beautiful thing. It's really beautiful. I've been devouring a book this last couple of weeks, a book, it's brand new. Um, if you're looking for something to read, it's by an author named Jackie Hill Perry. It's a book on holiness. It's called Holier Than Thou. And the subtitle of this book is, How God's Holiness Helps Us Trust Him. And she's a poet and a theologian and a Bible teacher. She's wonderful. She has an amazing testimony. But she said, I I didn't ever want to sit down and write a book on holiness. But she describes how one day she was sort of sitting in a coffee shop and she was thinking about the holiness of God and she started having this thought come to her mind about why we needed another book on holiness. She pulled out a napkin and she, she describes the process of writing down the following statement. I want you to listen to this, very profound. She's, she's describing the moment. She said, I don't remember the day I thought about this. I don't remember if my coffee was iced or warm. <laughs> what I know is that when I thought what I thought about holiness, I immediately wanted an answer for it. And here's what she wrote. If God is holy, then he can't sin. And if God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. And if God can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? Can you just think about that for a minute? Because it's really similar to righteousness. If God is holy, he can't sin. And if God can't sin, he can't sin against you or me. And if God can't sin against you, then he is the person in the universe that you can trust with your life more than anyone else. Even when, even when he says some things are right and some things are wrong, friends, you can trust him. Even when he declares some things are wicked and some things are good, you can trust him. Why? Because he's righteous. Even when he places boundaries in your life, you can trust him. Why? Because he's righteous. He's perfect in all of his judgments. Amen? Amen? But immediately we have a problem. And the problem is this. That part of this, the attribute of God, it can't be the primary thing that Paul's talking about here. We look back at verse 17. Paul cannot be talking primarily about an attribute of God. And here's why, because Paul is saying that whatever is happening in the gospel, something's being revealed, a mystery is being uncovered. But here's the thing, we already got a perfect revelation of God's righteousness in the Old Testament. The Old Testament law showed us God's righteousness perfectly. And Paul says, but with the gospel, something something new is being revealed. It's being uncovered. It has to do with God's righteousness. So it cannot just be something about his character. There's something else going on here. And that brings us to the second aspect. And that is divine action. So divine attribute, absolutely, but whenever Paul talks about the righteousness of God, he's talking about action, or think of it as divine activity. The righteousness of God involves action, God acting in a way that is consistent with his righteous character. This is where attribute becomes action. This is where God puts his money where his mouth is, all right, to use a really kind of grotesque phrase. This is God saying, here's a trait that's true of me, and now I'm going to demonstrate it through my action. And throughout Scripture, what we find is that God's righteousness and his action are always placed next to each other, always, in salvation. We know, we know Paul's talking about this because Paul's talking about the gospel as the power of God for salvation, and what does it reveal? It reveals his righteousness. God acting in a saving way, revealing his righteousness. Righteousness. And if you were to read through the Psalms, you would find all of these places where the righteousness of God and the salvation of God are set together. Let me just show you one. Here's Psalm 98, 2. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Does that sound familiar? That's basically Romans 1:16 and 17. Look at that. Paul's just saying... The gospel is the power of God for salvation, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And the reason this verse mattered so much to the people of Israel is that they believed God was righteous and they wanted the nations to know the righteousness of God. And they knew, God, there's one thing that you could do in our world that would demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt your righteous character. And that is show up in salvation. Show the nations. Put your money where your your mouth is. Let your action demonstrate your attribute, which is a really good thing, right? You know that your actions speak louder than your words, right? You know this. When I was a young man, right before Kathy and I got married, I shared with her, a claim sort of a boastful claim about myself that I should have never said to her, okay? Young men, pay very close attention to the story that I'm about to tell you. Kathy and I were talking and we were talking about communication and and I had a very high view of myself at this point, And I, I said to Kathy, you know, I'm actually a pretty good listener. Okay? Which, okay, Okay, young married people, let me give you a hint here. That's a claim you should make like 40 years into marriage, all right? Not not four days before marriage, right? Because Kathy quickly noted after a couple of months how poor of a listener I actually was, right? Your actions speak louder than your words. And this is true of God as well. You say, is God righteous? Absolutely. How does God reveal, how does God demonstrate righteousness through salvation? But let me tell you a problem we have, River West. That's that also cannot be what Paul's talking about only in this verse. He can't just be talking about God showing up to act in salvation. Because when God shows up to act in salvation, two things are going to happen. He's going to judge wickedness and he's going to vindicate righteousness. That's what salvation is. God judging wickedness. And and oh, how we long for that. Everyone wants judgment. And no one wants judgment. Because the question becomes... Which side of that little equation am I on? Is it good news for God to show up to judge wickedness and vindicate righteousness? I guess it depends on whether or not I think I'm perfectly righteous. And so I should pause really quickly before I say, it's such good news for God to reveal his righteousness because River West, the righteousness of God is actually my problem. It's precisely the issue that I have. Before we can receive righteousness as good news, we first have to recognize that righteousness is our problem because none of us is righteous, and we know it. And Paul's going to go out of his way to demonstrate it. From verse 18 on all the way into chapter 3, he is going to make a very conclusive, airtight argument for why there is no human being on earth who is righteous who on their own could stand before a holy God. Paul is gonna say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you don't understand that, you can't even begin to understand the gospel. No one is righteous. But God requires righteousness because he is righteous. That's his nature. So the one thing that God requires in order for me to stand in his presence and have a relationship with him is the very thing that I could never bring to the equation. Imagine if you were applying for a university. You'd submitted your application and the university called you and they said, we've got really good news. Here's what we require for admittance into our university. Such good news. You have to have a 4.0 and a 1600 on the SATs. Okay. Good news. You'd be like, how is that possibly good news for me? Okay. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. God says, good news. Here's what is required for you to be in my presence. Perfect righteousness. To which the believer says, the one thing that I need is the one thing that I could never contribute. So how could this possibly be good? How could the gospel be good news if what the gospel is revealing is the righteousness of God? And that's what brings us to our third feature, which is divine achievement. I'm gonna give you a five word summary of the book of Romans. God achieves what God demands. That's Romans. God achieves what God demands. Is righteousness the divine attribute? Absolutely, but on its own, that is not good news for me. Is righteousness divine action? Absolutely, but on its own, that is not good news for me. And so there's a third thing that God reveals in the gospel and it's something that God achieves on my behalf. And suddenly the diamond of the gospel gets set against black velvet and I see all of the glimmer and beauty and joy. And we come to like the nuclear core of Romans. God achieves what God demands. Friends, this is really good news, really good news. When Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, he's describing a righteousness of God demanded from us that God offers to us as a gift to be received by faith, which is why the very next phrase that Paul says is from faith for faith, it's about faith. Let me give you just a little preview of where we'll be. Romans chapter 3. I may be retired by the time we get to this chapter, but Romans 3. This is like, I'm just going to read this passage, and you're going to see all the things that I've been talking about in one kind of three-verse summary. Notice all the similarities to ch- verse 17. But now, Romans 3, 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, that's a lot like revealed, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, which is just the verbal form of righteousness that just means they're righteous by God. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. God gives what God demands. I love this. There's three things that you need to know. Every time we come to the word righteousness in Romans, Paul's gonna talk about three things and I'm just gonna preview these because we're gonna unpack them more as we study. And by the way, let me just remind you, let me just remind you, if you don't get this, everything from here on out, Romans, is just gonna fly over your head, but that's not even the most important thing. If you don't get this, you do not have the one thing that you must have to be able to stand before God, both now and someday in the future when there's a judgment you're going to have to be able to stand in God's presence and you're going to need perfect righteousness. So this is not just, I'm not up here just messing around. I'm talking about the most important thing that a Christian needs to know about their eternal destination. This is critical. And every time Paul talks about righteousness, he's he's gonna say three things. First, he's going to say, it's a gift. Righteousness is a gift. You can't earn it. You can't accomplish it. You can't obtain it. It doesn't matter how hard you work. You will never get there. It's a gift. Romans 5.17. There's many places I could go. Romans 5.17. Do we have that one, Zach? For if because of one man's trespass, he's talking about Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life to the one man, Jesus Christ. And then later in 10, he'll say, don't even try to earn it. You can't earn it. This last week I was standing in my kitchen and we're doing some remodeling in our basement and our carpenter came through, really wonderful guy. And he was telling me about his Christmas traditions, and this is a, one of these stories where as a pastor, you just, you just realize, I just was given the perfect invitation to preach the gospel, okay, which is a pastor. I love this. He was saying on Christmas morning, every Christmas morning, since when his little girls were tiny, they would bake a cake Christmas Eve, and then on Christmas morning, they would sing happy birthday to Jesus, okay and which I've got thoughts about that, but that's for another sermon. Okay, so he's, uh, he's saying we sing happy birthday to Jesus, and then here's what he said next. I kid you not. He goes, he goes I'm not a perfect guy. I've lived a pretty good life, but I figure when I stand before St. Peter, I'm gonna need something to get into heaven, and I figure singing happy birthday to Jesus every Christmas morning is not a bad thing okay, let me realize, this is, okay, this is a past, this is me like sweating from, I'm like, oh my gosh, if I, if I do not share the gospel right now, I am not just a horrible pastor. I'm a horrible human being. Okay. And I said, that is interesting because this is what's amazing about Christianity is that you and I could never do anything to stand before Jesus. So God in his grace gives us perfect righteousness. I mean, I've been studying Romans chapter 1, verse 17, okay? <laughs> right? It's human nature to think, maybe I should just try. And maybe if I fail, I'll try a little bit harder. And Paul's going to say, it's a gift. It's a gift. Here's the second thing Paul is always going to say. It's a gift and it's alien. It's alien. Now, don't think little green men running around, okay. When I say alien, what I mean is righteousness is alien to you. It's outside of you. This is external. This is something that is not inherent to you. It comes from outside. And Paul's going to say, what I'm talking about is a perfect record, a righteousness that somehow in the, in the logic and the mathematics of the gospel gets credited to your account. And how that works, we'll discover in Romans chapter 4. But the point is, you, from, this, from the moment you, you become united with Christ in faith, you have credited to, to your account a perfect righteousness that you carry with you throughout your life and to the day of judgment. When I was a junior in high school, it was the last class of my junior year. It was my, it was my creative writing class, and I, was, I walked into, it was the final, and when I walked in, the teacher said, everybody sit down, and she handed all of us a piece of paper and a pen, and she put a question on the board, some really complex question, and she said, write a five-page paper responding to this question. I can't even remember what the question was because I'm so traumatized by what happened next. <laughs> So what happened next for me over the course of the next two hours is that my brain shut down completely. Have you ever had this experience? I'm not just talking writer's block. I'm talking like brain block. I'm talking, I was like a dumb animal for two and a half hours. I couldn't think of anything. I was was like 15 minutes from the time limit and I had on my piece of paper my name and that's it. And that took a lot of energy to get out. Now, imagine me in that moment walking forward with a blank piece of paper. That's me and righteousness. But what if, just as I was about to set down my blank piece of paper, what if another student came up and ripped that piece of paper out of my hand took that blank piece of paper and wrote her name on it. And then she put in my hand her perfectly executed essay where she had scratched out her name and wrote my name on it. I'm not recommending this, okay? This is cheating, okay? It's an illustration. Some of you are already, you're not getting it. Okay, there's no extra credit here for being morally high ground, okay? There's an illustration. But what if that happened where suddenly I set down a perfect essay? This is alien righteousness. This is the record of Jesus that gets credited to my account. It's a gift. It's alien And finally, and this is where I'm going to end, it's received through faith. Faith. Faith is the key. I'm going to have the worship team come. And I'm going to tell you about faith. Will you look back at verse 17 in your Bible? Did you notice how many times Paul mentions faith in two verses? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation. Oh, but to who? To those who believe. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And look at the next phrase. From faith for faith. Which was probably a way of Paul saying, from the very beginning of your Christian journey to the very end, the thing that connects you to the righteousness of Jesus is faith. Faith is not something that you do that is righteous in and of itself. Faith simply connects you to Jesus Christ and his perfect record. And it does it right at the beginning. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God immediately credits to you Jesus's perfect righteousness. That is a miracle. And then you live out the rest of your Christian life connected to Jesus. And you actually even begin to change. His perfect righteousness, not only credited to you, but beginning to transform your heart and your life so that you begin to look more and more and more like Jesus every day. This, folks, is absolutely beautiful. I'll close with one of my favorite verses. The Apostle Paul, Galatians 2, verse 20. Remember Paul said? Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. I think Paul's talking about righteousness. He's saying, my faith connects me to Jesus. It's not just that the, the righteousness that I receive is this extrinsic thing that's just transferred onto me. Yes, it starts there, but then by faith, I begin to live and I begin to get connected to Jesus and my life begins to change and righteousness actually becomes a way of living for me. By faith, it's Jesus Christ living through me in this world as I depend on him in faith.